Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Well, a very good morning. Another beautiful day here across across South Texas in the Hill Country. Not cool by any means, but not hot either. It's just all that humidity, but... Golly, considering that this is the first day of May, it's just not bad out there. It's going to be a beautiful day to garden. It's going to be a beautiful day to work with your houseplants. It's going to be a beautiful day to be outside, whatever you happen to be doing. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about for the next three hours. It uh, looks like three of the four lines are taken with Mark from Houston, Mark from Fredericksburg, and Thomas leaves one open. Grab it if you like. You just heard the number, 210-599-5555. And why don't we start out over Houston way? Good morning, Mark. Good morning, sir. I hope you're doing well. I'm off to a good start. Have the pleasure of uh, unloading a part of a semi at 6.30 this morning, so I am wide awake. Uh, we don't even have to follow the old adage that the nice thing about radio is you only have to sound awake. You don't have to look awake. I think I actually probably look awake this morning, so my day's off to a good start. What about you? Well, I'm grateful for being vertical once again. So um, <laughs> That's the best place to start. <laughs> Frankly, Although sometimes would would rather be horizontal, but just with the opportunity to become vertical at, at vertical at our choice of times. Well, I, I figure at my age, if I can become vertical on my own, that's a good day. <laughs> well, I'll take your word for that. Okay, um, I have three questions. If there is time to ask them, so you go right ahead. Okay, in terms, uh, we had some we bought some starting potatoes, starter potatoes. Or, mm-hmm. What are they actually called? Is that seed right seed potatoes? Seed, seed potatoes. potatoes. Okay. Yeah, got seed potatoes. Didn't all get into the ground, unfortunately. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. So we're thinking about holding them over for uh, the fall planting, and wonder. And some of them have like a almost like a bush of eyes on them. Uh, should they be put in a uh, let's see a, a paper bag in the refrigerator? How should they be stored? Well, in all honesty, it's probably not worth the effort, but what you need to do is pack them in something loose and dry. Uh, some growers use sawdust, some people use perlite. Then, you know, package them up in a paper bag or whatever, but then that paper bag would need to go inside of a plastic bag. The problem with our modern refrigerators, if you can call it a problem, is that the humidity is so low. That's what makes them frost-free. And if you just put them in there without being sealed up in something, they're going to shrivel up and be absolutely nothing left in uh, four or five months when you think about planting them again. If you want to go to the trouble, like I say, very, very gently, Pack them up. Um, and how how many of them are there that you're looking at protecting? I've got about four. Uh, I don't know okay. how many Wendy has. Okay. You could, uh, again, as big Ziploc bag would do well at a very minimum. If it's more than that, it'll fit in a gallon Ziploc or two. Uh, I guess you use just a small, you know, small 
plastic garbage bag or something like that. But sealing them up in something uh, moisture-proof is going to be critical if you're going to have anything left of them. Uh, you're going to a lot of work for $2 worth of potatoes, but, you know, on the other hand, seed potatoes are sometimes hard to find in the fall. So if you want to do it, go for it. Well, we had a lot of trouble finding seed potatoes this time around. We had to go into uh, Alvin, I think, uh, from Houston to get them. And it's just the thought of being able to re- re-like, put new life into them. <laughs> well, it's it's always good. Uh, uh, sad to say, but, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to get them online or else drive some distance. The thing about seed potatoes, they are certified to be free from the diseases that potatoes can sometimes get. And the potatoes that go into the grocery stores, they have gotten pretty efficient at killing the dormant eyes on the potatoes. You know, years ago you bought potatoes, and if you didn't bake them the first week, they started sprouting in your pantry. Uh, mm-hmm. Nowadays, and they, the main thing they do, thankfully, rather than do it chemically, is they flash freeze them. They hit them with uh, very cold air just long enough to kill the eyes, but not enough to freeze or ruin the potato. But uh, by all means, uh, again, if you you want to store them, there's nothing wrong with that. Just pack them in something that will keep those eyes from getting broken, then putting it in something that will seal them against the dehydration. Okay, I guess straw would not be a good medium for doing that. Um, if you've got good, clean straw that you're sure didn't have any herbicide sprayed on it uh, when it was grown, uh, that would be just fine. Okay. So now, in your area, is, pine straw pine straw is also widely available, and that would be fine, too. Okay. Got that written down. Second question is, I was moving some dirt that had a, a tree. It's I, Unfortunately, I just don't remember the name of it. It's the kind that grows like a weed and has those pretty fluffy uh, yellow flowers on the ends that droop down. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, it could be straggler daisy or one of several others, but yes, sir. Yeah. And as I was digging, I was going to transfer that into a, a larger pot that already had some dirt in it to plant some other stuff. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of uh, the desiccated bark that was in there, or the the roots, and uh-huh. I didn't pay much attention to them. And as I was moving them, I saw some black things with wings kind of crawling uh-huh. around the dirt, and I'm guessing those are termites. So uh, if that's correct, is there anything I can mix in there to kill the termites, or do I need to just throw the, all the dirt away somewhere? No, 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 do not throw the dirt away. You, you've got a choice. If you wanted to mix some DE, diatomaceous earth, in there, that would do the job. If you simply wanted to mix a little orange oil with water and drench the pot with that, that would take care of uh, any... You know, termites are basically winged ants, and what you're seeing, if they were black rather than white, they're probably ants rather than termites, but they're still not something you're anxious to have in the pots. But if it were me, I'd just take a two-gallon watering can, put an ounce of orange oil in there, and just water that pot thoroughly and know that I'd taken care of the pill bugs, the millipedes, the uh, ants, and every other form of non-beneficial life that was in there. And that's what would be easy. On the other hand, if you just want to take a cup of diatomaceous earth, mix it thoroughly with the soil, that will probably take care of them as well. Okay. Well, maybe I'll try to do both uh, with some time spread apart <laughs> so the orange oil doesn't uh, ruin the DE. Well, it, the- it, whatever's easy for you. <laughs> okay. Boy, yeah, once again, in my age, easy is a really, really good term. Uh, the third okay. question is, what, you had something else to say? Oh, I was just thinking, as I was unloading that semi this morning, the driver and I were talking about relative ages, and I was quoting to him 
uh, a quote from an old friend that wrote a hiking guide to a part of Wyoming that I love to hike. And his comment was, we do not stop hiking because we grow old. We grow old because we stop hiking. So you keep on using that body and it'll keep on letting you, letting you use it. So it's not a bad thing. You know, I agree with that 100%, but I, I guess then this morning with unloading it, you don't have to go to the gym to work out, right? I, my gym is called Shades of Green Nursery, plus a few hundred acres in the hill country that I live on. So it's been a while since I went to the gym. <laughs> okay, good. The final question is, um, and I went to the the popular webs, uh, what do you call it, Internet, uh-huh. and to ask this question, and I wasn't specific on a garden center. And in a single screen, it alternated between yes and no. The question is, does peppermint repel bees? Peppermint repels many insects, but I can't say that it, um, I I don't know, I've I've never really looked at it. I think if it were concentrated, as in the oil of peppermint, that probably would be repellent to bees. Just peppermint growing in a given space probably would not. Um, I, I mean, there's very little that would draw bees to peppermint because the flowers are very nondescript and peppermint doesn't really any, repel anything that a bee is looking for. Uh, if you were trying to repel bees, I don't think you could do it with a pot of peppermint, but if you went to, uh, you know, any place that had uh, concentrated essential oils, uh, the, the strong essence of peppermint would probably repel most flying insects. Well, we're not interested in repelling the bees. We are re- wanting to repel stink bugs and things like that, stuff that attacks blackberries, for one. Sure, and we, sure. And, and know that the blackberries need bees, and I was just wondering if a mixture of peppermint, not peppermint plants, but yep. mixing some peppermint with a spray would would do the job without. I, I doubt that it would really repel them what i would probably do is uh spray in the afternoon or evening rather than in the morning because bees are always most active before 10 o'clock in the morning i think if you sprayed in the evening you would accomplish your um, job of getting rid of the undesirables and most of that uh, aroma whatever we want to call it would have dissipated by morning so i think if you followed that regimen you would probably be just fine now we don't have you know our bee population seem to be pretty low uh, i've i've just probably seen a tenth of the normal number of honeybees that i would see at this time of the spring so i uh, don't assume that you've run the bees off if you don't see a lot of them there may just not be a whole lot of them out there to see I would tell you at some point, read up on what are called mason bees, or sometimes called cedar bees. They are a native solitary bee. They don't live in colonies. And we have like a 100 different species here in Texas. And they are actually more efficient pollinators than honeybees are. And there are a number of things you can do to attract them to the area of your garden. And you might want to read up on that and look at how you can construct a simple little mason bee um, a colony, well, since they're not really a colony, but it may be a tractor, and all you really need is an old chunk of cedar, either an old cedar tree or a piece of uh, western red cedar. Drill a bunch of holes in it from 3 eighths to 5 eighths of an inch in diameter to 3 inches deep into the wood. Hang it out in a shady place, and you can bring lots of mason bees into your garden, which are going to do a better job than a honeybee of pollinating for you. We have, or I have in my house, I think Wendy has at her house one. I've got two of those Mason B houses. Good, very good. Well, uh, you're off to a good start, and you're doing it right, Mark. 
Oh, great. Thank you again, Mr. Edgeman. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. You have a great day in the big city of Houston, and we will talk again. And right now, let's see. Uh, Mark, hang on a second. I don't want to get behind on these commercials. Let me do a real quick one, and then we'll head to Fredericksburg for our second. Mark, I get to talk to you about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and uh, it's just a pleasure talking about a company that does such a good job, and I love sending people to them. So many people actually call me back and say thank you for telling me about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. You know, a roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems costs very little more than a shingle roof. And the difference is it's going to last a lifetime. Those shingles are going to last from 7 to 12 years, depending on the weather, or they might last 7 days if we get a nice big hailstorm. Well, if you've got a roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, you simply stop worrying. They have the best warranty in the industry because they never have to come out and do anything. Our roof here at Shades of Green stood up to baseball-size hail, and you have to work hard to find the tiniest little dimple in it. My roof at my home is been on for, I guess, about 20 years now. Never called them once with a problem. If you want the roof that will save you money on your insurance, save you money on your utility bills, look good 365 days a year, and give you peace of mind when it comes to storm damage, well, the number to call is 210-822-6868. It's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this beautiful Sunday morning and up to the hill country. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Bob. Good morning. How are you, sir? Okay, we we were lucky. We were under the right cloud last week and we got an inch and a half of rain. Oh, man, you were. I was uh, I was out of town a good deal of last week, and I was very surprised. I actually got 58 one-hundredths, which was a lot more than I expected. So uh, I got a half or a third of what you did, but I'm thankful. Have your hummingbirds come back? Yeah, well, yeah. It's So the last couple of years, the numbers have been way down. Uh-huh. Last, you know, we had 2,000 four years ago, and last year maybe 800, and this year it's even less. Well, I think all of them are not here yet, and I'm sad to say I think that a lot of them came back too early two years ago and got hit with that big freeze because we've seen the same things with songbirds, uh, you know, not just with hummingbirds. But that that February single digits, or you guys were below zero. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of migratory creatures, including bats, had come back, and uh, it, it was lethal to them. One of the things is the Millie Blue Sage didn't bloom until we got that little bit of rain. Yeah, and so it was. It was very late. Yep, and that's that's what that's we think that's why we have so many of them here because it's everywhere out here. The Mealy Blue Sage. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, so they also was, because that's also because uh, uh, Mark and Diane are are keeping them keeping the uh, the buffet very well very well filled and ready for them. But uh, anyway, well, I was just curious yeah. about that. How can I help you this morning? Well. Just quickly, first, we're in the fight of our life with this oak wilt. <laughs> yeah. I told you several weeks ago, it was it was too close to the yard for us to trench and right. keep it out of the yard. And we've got like 12 to, 12 to 16, <clears throat> 36 to 48 inch live oaks. Right. And this, this drought is so bad, too. The, you know, I've seen good evidence of the cornmeal, you know, stopping it. But, boy, when it gets dry like this, it hardly has time to do a whole lot because uh, that, that's what oak wilt does. It pl- plugs up the vessels that transport the water from the roots of the tree up to the top of the tree, 
And when there's very little water to begin with, uh, you're right. It it is a real tough situation. It 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 knocked out two groves very quickly in, in the late fall and winter, <clears throat> yeah. like really fast. Yep. And, they they actually yeah, they call them mots, but uh, oh, yeah, anywhere that right. you can, uh, anywhere that you can water, that will certainly help. I'm doing that. Yeah. Good. And I, I told you that we we didn't really have really good luck with the cornmeal. So yeah. at this point, we're having to count on the Alamo to save like three 30 to 40 inch trees. Well, you you realize all it does is suppress the symptoms. It doesn't stop yeah. it from spreading further. Right. And be prepared right. to repeat right. it in about three years. Right. That's that's part of the. We we've been talking to two or three of the top experts that and have the most experience. Anyhow, it's it's. We had to cut two water lines, two fences, and the whole power to our shop to trench. And then I had to put a new, a whole new power line in the ground. <laughs> wow. Anyway, it's yeah. been a mess. So, <clears throat> a couple things, though. Um, I use the pressure-compensating drip hose, and we've the last couple years, <clears throat> we very closely put it down and spaced it out, and I planted my carrots in between it. And it's in the one garden that has really good dirt. So we've been dripping it with this drip hose, but I got to thinking <clears throat> most of these things that are real sunproof or sun-resistant mm-hmm. have lead in them. Do you think having the lead in that drip hose would be a problem for carrots growing in there? No, no. And you've got you've got more background metal in the ground, including arsenic and, you know, even radon or the uh, things that cause radon up sitting on the granite where you are. No, I any lead that's in there is going to be you know, totally, uh, totally tied up. Uh, if it were in the ground, it's not something that would be ins- absorbed into the plants. Now, uh, uh, sadly, the, uh, you know, the little connectors are not as sun resistant. I've had, uh, I, I find that they get quite brittle over time. So I usually put a shovel full of dirt over the T's and L's and things like that because that hose goes for years. But those uh, little connectors tend to get brittle after a year or two. I don't know if you've discovered that if you actually leave them up on the surface. I I find, and it just really depends on the soil that you are in, But uh, and if your soil is loose and open, you can get away with uh, burying the drip hose. But if you're in a heavy clay soil, I'm finding that the uh, drip hose doesn't function as well when it's buried, and I'm sure it's just that clay kind of seals over where the water comes out and uh, I'm telling people in heavy clay soil leave the drip hose on the surface and it works great but where you are you can probably get away with burying it and of course you can just judge by the success of your garden there we've always left it on the surface and and mulched it largely with leaves and or now we have about 200 cubic yards of of tree mulch already from the storm so we put that on the surface you're doing it right the rainbird drip hose does that use like a pressure fitting or is it a the, the fittings we use now are this or the screw-on type they um the the fittings uh, are you know should just be totally open the pressure compensating part of that tube is actually a little and it, i'm sure you've probably cut open a hose and look at it but that little bitty piece of plastic that's you know an inch long that's underneath each hole mm-hmm. uh that is what does the pressure compensating you do not want to reduce the pressure in the hose itself no, what I'm saying, the, the T's and the L's, how do they fasten on? Oh, uh, I, the ones we use are just, they're barbed. You just uh, warm the hose up and push it in. Yeah, I've had those where they just popped open. 
there's, there's actually three different sizes of half-inch drip hose that uh-huh. are very close to a half-inch, and if you didn't use exactly the right size. But mm. we use these kinds that have a, a, a you, you push it over the fitting, and then it screws tight onto it. Okay, well, and that will work fine. I just, anyway, yeah. yeah. I, I buy the ones that Rayburn makes that are made for that particular hose, and man, I can't pull them out if I wanted to. If you find that you made a mistake, you have to you have to cut it off and slice the drip hose in order to get the fitting back out of it. So I haven't discovered that, but I'm glad to know there's a solution for that if you if somebody does have that problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, next thing, <clears throat> so there doesn't seem to be a high quality watering wand. The, the DRAM ones eventually they all develop a pinhole. Oh yeah, and yeah. Have you had any luck? Any found it? I mean, I've looked for years actually and never found a, another brand really. No, I I haven't either. Uh, it uh, you could make your own if you wanted to. You know, a couple of fittings um, wouldn't look very good, but you could make one out of Schedule Forty PVC. And uh, uh, but I, on the market, DRAM's still the best one out there. The nozzles last forever. But that wand, like you say, right where it hooks onto the hose, it just oxidizes and after two years. But be aware that you can probably, of course, you don't have uh, as much selection, but go to the Friendly Natives or whatever up there, and you can buy, usually buy the wand separately from the nozzle, and yeah. consequently you're not having to spend quite as much money every two years. But no, I've... Uh, right. And believe me, we got about ten of them on hoses around the nursery, and we experience putting on one or two new ones every month as they give up. Yeah. But I, yeah. I haven't found anything better, and I'm afraid if there was, it would be uh, prohibitive in price. <clears throat> right? Yeah, I just thought I'd check with you. So one last tip: so we we use the rock phosphate um, pretty much on everything we plant. Okay. And I don't I don't know. You said it, it helps a lot on tomatoes, but you didn't see so much benefit on other plants, I guess. Well, or? proportionately on tomatoes, you see a very dramatic effect on other things. I mean, the rock phosphate, powder rock phosphate is going to help with rooting on every plant. There're just a few plants that it just seems almost magical for, and tomatoes, uh you see a profound result with it. Other things you see some improvement would be the best way I can state it. Yeah, okay. So what we do, we, we take a spice jar that has the shaker top with the, uh-huh. the, the little plastic perforator top. You fill that up, and then you take your plant out, and you just open that, and you just shake it all over the root ball. Yeah, that's what a lot of landscapers do with planting even shrubs and trees. With yeah. the tomatoes, I I feel like uh, I like having actually, you know, a quarter, half-inch thick layer of it because that shaking over the roots is going to really help for the first six weeks of growth and production. But I count on my tomatoes to produce for a lot longer period of time, and I think you'd have a longer-lasting effect. Of course, your Fredericksburg soils are different from my Bernie soils, but uh, I feel like I get a, a longer beneficial effect by actually having a layer of it they they have to grow their roots through and they can continue to benefit from it but uh i you know whatever works works whatever's doing well in your garden don't change just because i do it a little differently but sometimes you might try my ideas and if they if they're an improvement then keep on doing them if not do whatever you've always done right yeah okay yeah we're feeding a whole lot of animals bird seed at night at the feeders that since there's still no acorns Boy, isn't that the truth? Uh, I don't, I don't mind some of the nocturnal creatures, but you can have the hogs and a few other things that yeah. show up to dine on it too. But uh, well, it's good to talk okay. to you. You good guys, to you, uh, 
have a good day, and we'll look forward to our next visit. Thank you so much. Yeah, right. uh-huh. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, quick break here, and then we're going to talk to Thomas and Cosette and David. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening here, and I believe Thomas is up next. Uh, Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Thanks for being there. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, I'm planting uh, a bunch of uh, four-inch pots, you know, different things. Okay. Whenever you... Whenever you uh, put the seed down in there and, you know, you water it in real good, how wet do you keep that, that pot, you know? Well, it's, you know, the the thing that's sometimes difficult is being able to water it effectively without washing the soil and the seed out. And that's why I usually use a little mist nozzle, which you have to hold there for some time. But if you're really saturating the soil thoroughly, just wait until that soil feels dry to the touch on top and, you know, you hit it again really thoroughly. Just be sure that you're not just watering the surface. You want to water all the way through the pot. On average, that's going to be every couple of days. Of course, once the seed sprouts and gets some roots down, it's going to be drying out a whole lot faster. But I just lay my index finger on the surface of the soil. If it feels dry, starts to feel at all powdery, I know it's time to water again. And I'll, you know, turn on that mist nozzle and hold it there for a minute or two till everything's well saturated. Yeah, I was afraid I, I might be keeping it too wet, you know, but I understand that. That's about what I've been doing. Just I watch it real close. Uh, yeah, it's, it would be hard. As you've heard me say so many times, water doesn't hurt anything. But if you keep something so wet, the water drives the oxygen out of the soil. It's the lack of oxygen that does the damage to the plants. And if you're using a good, you know, loose soil mix, as I usually germinate seeds in, it, it, I'm not going to say you couldn't keep it too wet, but it's doubtful. Okay. Another thing, I, want to, uh, I got about three questions here for you. Okay. On the sweet potatoes, how late can you plant the you know, sweet potatoes? You can plant, you know, on up into the summer. Uh, sweet potatoes are like the white potatoes. They don't truly ripen. The earlier you plant them, the bigger they have time to get before they freeze back in the fall. So I, you, I would, nah, I'd say try to have them planted by the middle of July, but you're not in a rush to get them in because there's, in my opinion, there's not a lot of difference in a sweet potato that weighs half a pound and one that weighs two pounds. In fact, I'd rather have a little bit smaller sweet potatoes to begin with. So you've got another six weeks of good planting time. In fact, more than that, you've got probably another two and a half months of time that you could plant them. The sooner you get them in, of course, the sooner you will have sweet potatoes to harvest. Yeah. But uh, they well, they don't ripen. They don't have to be picked on a given day to get them at the peak of flavor because they taste just about the same as small sweet potatoes as they do big ones. Well, I haven't been able to find any slips. You know, there's one garden, uh, one uh, nursery said, well, we don't, we didn't get any this year because last year we threw away too many of them. And yeah, yeah. So well, you can always start your own, of course, but um, uh, that there are some Places on the internet that, of course, will send them to you, and you can get a wider range of varieties that way. But lots of folks still just do the old toothpicks in a jar of water and uh, start their own slips from a potato they get at uh, Whole Foods or somewhere. Right. 
Another thing I want to ask you about, uh, whenever, uh, like for mosquito control, if you put these uh, mosquito dunks in water and then strain it, you know, strain it off and then use that water in the spray, would that do any good? Um, not really, uh, because the the bacteria, the Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis that's in the mosquito dunk, only kills the larval state of the mosquito. And so it's not going to do a whole lot uh, just spraying it around the landscape uh, in, in dry weather like we typically have here. Maybe in Houston, maybe somewhere that typically gets heavier rainfall. Maybe in Panama, I just was reading a book about the Panama Canal. Somewhere like that, it might be effective. But um, I, I don't think you would really accomplish much uh you with your liquid solution. Now, one of these days, if we're able to get BTI in a concentrated liquid form, then it might be worth trying. But using little mosquito bits or mosquito dunks, I just I, I think you'd be doing a lot of work without much results, especially keeping in mind that mosquitoes can fly up to a mile. You can kill every mosquito in your yard, and you'll still have some of them come in. So I, you know, I'm going to spray with something like orange oil or spray with garlic if I'm going to you know, be have a group over or something. If it's just going to be me, I'm going to light one of the anaerobic candles, and those do a pretty good job of keeping them away. I, I think you're doing be doing a lot of work without much results. Okay, yeah, well, I just I haven't done it yet. I just I yep. thought, you know, well, it works in the water. Yep. So. Well, it's it's again, it doesn't do anything to the adult mosquito. It just gets their larvae, so that's why we just use them in the water. Right, I understand that. You know, I've got a pear tree I bought from Phoenix uh, oh, about three or four years ago. Uh-huh. It's doing real good, but it, this last freeze, when this thing come out, this crazy thing on the base of the tree and the bottom part of it, it's got these shoots that come out, and they're growing uh, right along the bark of the tree straight up. Uh-huh. Not out, but just straight up along the, the trunk. I've seen them actually try to grow underneath the bark, but those shoots are probably coming off the rootstock, and you don't want to let them get started. Just break them off or cut them off whenever you see them. Well, that's what I've been, you know, uh, yep. been doing. I just cut yep. them off, but I, I just I never saw that before, you know. Pear trees are, I mean, they will produce limbs that just grow totally vertical, and it's just something in those cells. It's called geotrophism that makes them decide which way to grow, and it is much more pronounced in pears than it is in most other fruit trees. So it's uh, uh, unusual, and this this severe cold we had has caused some plants to do some things that I can't explain. I just look at it, shake my head, and move on to something else that I have a better idea what's going on but you just keep cutting them off and hopefully that pear tree will be producing for you pretty soon i understand okay bob well thanks for your time always a pleasure thomas thank you and we say good morning to cosette good morning cosette good morning bob good morning how are you today well i have a problem so my bastion party pinks are about 30 feet tall they're gorgeous uh-huh. the main reason i bought my house to be honest um but i guess their growing habit is um the trunks tend to split almost like it's a conjoined plant is that right oh i i don't 
really know a word that describes that habit, but uh, I guess that would be as good as word as any, but they do tend to form very narrow angle growth is, uh, is just the way I've yeah. always expressed it. But, yeah, I know exactly what you're speaking of. Okay, so I've got leaves on them, um, but a, the right side of one of them has no leaves. It looks completely dead, but the left side has leaves. So I've been I've been putting some Medina on it. I've been watering it thoroughly, and I'm still not seeing any leaves. So I don't know how do I cut off the dead side because they're conjoined. So I, I, I'm not really sure. I'd, I'd give it a while longer to come out, but uh, I'd, I wouldn't give up on it leafing out till the 4th of July. If anything, you could, if you were able, because like you say, they do get 30 feet tall, but if you could cut maybe a third off of the limbs, just off the tip of the limbs that are coming out on that side, many times it will force that limb to come out if it's just slow to make break dormancy, break dormancy for whatever reason. Are the root flares on these well exposed? Do you see a big broad base where they come up out of the ground? Yes, I make sure that I keep them exposed. I don't let soil um, or leaves or anything accumulate over it. Um, yeah. The, the thing, whenever I... I you early on. <laughs> well, and you're doing a good thing. The When I see a plant, whether it's a tree or a big bush like a crepe myrtle or anything like that, and one side of it is not doing as well as the rest of the plant, sometimes what has happened, in fact, frequently what has happened, and you can't really tell this unless you get an air spade or something and, you know, blow the soil away where you can see six inches down the trunk of that tree, down even below the root flare. A lot of times if you have a girdling root, keep in mind that a girdling root doesn't have to circle all the way around the trunk to cause problems. If it is simply pressing up against one side of where those roots really start going down into the ground, it can cause that. It can actually cause one side of a tree to simply not do as well in the extreme. It can actually cause one side of the tree for the limbs on that side to die. So I I would be very careful who you called, but I, I would think about getting a really good arbor since these crepe myrtles are as important to you as they are, but uh, you could call my friend David Vaughn, who does consulting and nothing else, or you could call Ed Edder over at Edder Tree Care and consult with them about that. That That's about the only thing that I've ever seen that will cause one side uh, other than girdling and, uh, you know, in a young plant, sometimes sunburn. But a lot of times if one side of the plant is simply not doing as well as the other side, somewhere four to six inches down underneath the ground, it's got a big old root just pressing up against the side of the trunk. And that could be what's causing it. I'm not saying it is, but that's the main thing that I see happening. And it's it's not a do-it-yourself job. Sometimes these, press, these roots build up so much pressure that when they're cut, it's kind of like pulling a rubber band really tight and then cutting it. You're going to get popped. And you don't want to get popped with a good chunk of root uh, coming free. But if, uh, if I had a crepe myrtle that was that important a part of my landscape, 
Um, I think I would call a very good arborist and have them come out, probably use an air spade, to carefully clear away the dirt from the side of the tree that's not doing well and see if you don't have a girdling root there that could be removed and could allow that plant to do a whole lot better. I, again, that's uh, it's not absolute that that's what it is, but that, to me, because you're a good gardener, you're doing everything else right, and that's the one thing that I would imagine could be responsible for causing that problem. You know, now that you mention that, so I, I don't know, it has like a baby plant next to it. So is that how it grows? Like it has these shoots? Um, because it looks like these the three large ones, which I uh-huh. gather are the parent plants, um, well, they get these shoots. And that's normal for crepe myrtles. Like smaller trees? Yeah, okay. that's normal for crepe myrtles that might or might not contribute to the problem. Okay. And also, I know everybody's got three questions for you, um, but I was wondering, it's a trifecta kind of day, Bob. <laughs> that's, uh, that's why I'm sitting here doing this. I love it. Yes. So I was wondering, um, I have an Arctic frost um, satsuma, and it's in my front yard facing west. I had put mulch down, but not right up against the trunk. Um, okay. So I'm kind of confused about my mulch, um, I didn't know if I was supposed to water the mulch as well because I know I don't want to water just around the base of the plant, right, to encourage sure. the roots to spread out. So right. how do I how do I place everything as far as adding soil, adding black cow, um, and then the mulch? Like, where is the placement on that? Well, like, let's, let's, that? let's think about what mulch does. Mulch... Uh, cools the surface of the soil, which really helps the roots. So it doesn't really matter whether it's wet or dry. Uh, mulch suppresses the growth of weeds, uh, so it doesn't really water, you know, have any effect whether it's wet or dry. It does help through shading and through keeping the soil cooler. It does help retain moisture in the soil. So periodically, you know, water the whole area. I mean, set your sprinkler out in that area or whatever. Water the mulch, but water the surrounding soil as well, because 20% of what the mulch does probably has something to do with moisture. The other 80% really doesn't you know, have a lot to do with moisture. What it does as far as uh, shading is reducing evap- the transpiration, or I'm sorry, the evaporation of water, things like that. It doesn't really matter whether the mulch is wet or dry, and it's going to hold some moisture naturally, so I wouldn't be too terribly concerned. I'd just do a general watering of the area and just don't have your mulch right up against the trunk of the tree or shrub or whatever, uh, but you're, you're, doing it's doing its work covering the root zone or covering the area where the plant has roots and this arctic frost probably hadn't grown roots too far out so what you're doing is just shading and cooling the soil in the area where the roots are so obviously a big plant it would be nice to mulch a little further out than is necessary with a small plant but it's not an exact science okay so if i I believe the diameter of my trunk is Probably close to two inches. Okay, I'd I'd try to have your mulch maybe out four feet from the tree. For every for every, uh, if you take the diameter of the trunk, double that and convert it to feet instead of inches. I mean, if it was a one inch trunk, I'd you know probably go two feet out. Two inch trunk, I'd probably go four feet out. 
uh, three inch trunk. I would, <laughs> you, you get to a point where you can't just cover the whole yard, but a young tree, uh, really, I like to say double the diameter and convert that to feet, just call those feet, and that's about how far out I'd have the mulch. Oh, okay. Well, I could totally remember that. And also, can I transplant a, a rosemary plant? It's not very large. It's uh, It likes where it's at. However, my mother decided to plant, she lives on our property, and she decided to plant a um, passion flower vine, and <laughs> it is clinging all over that thing. Okay. How, how long has the rosemary been in the ground? Um, I would say since last spring. Okay. You could transplant it. I wish we'd done it back when the weather was cooler because we're moving into the hot time of the year, and that's when it's hard to transplant woody plants. But if the plant's you know not going to make it where it is, you've got nothing to lose. But if you think it could stay there a while longer, I would put it off and do it next fall after the weather cools off. Okay, and then what's the best place to plant it? Full sun, soil that drains well, where nobody's going to plant a passion vine. Okay, awesome. Thanks so much, Bob. You enjoy the rest of your weekend. You certainly do, too, because it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye. All right, got to get a break in here, and David and Steve are my next two callers after that. I get to talk to you about Rhonda and Rhonda's Nature's Way. What a pleasure that is. Talk about a lady who has improved the lives of so many people through teaching them about good health, about the benefit of natural supplements, and who offers these products. So much better than you're going to find on a grocery store shelf or a chain pharmacy. Plus, she and her staff have the knowledge to really, really help. You're going to a nutritionist. You're going to a naturopath. You're going to somebody that really understands how the human body works. And Rhonda's Nature's Way offers the very best in products and services. They do the red light, beamer light therapy. I tell you, your doctor will tell you how good those are. She does reflexology at the Northside store. They do a detox foot bath. They do some wonderful things for your ears. So just a lot of things that will make you feel better and will give you relief from problems like digestive issues or sleep issues or pain issues. There's some wonderful things that Rhonda provides. And right now she is always, you know, looking for other people that would like to learn more. She needs some help basically at both of her stores. And if you have an interest in uh, learning a great deal about that and earning some money, it's mainly part-time work, but let me tell you, if you're good, I'm sure it could grow into a full-time position. Next time you're in Rhonda's Nature's Way, ask her about that if you're interested. And if you don't know about Rhonda's Nature's Way, if you feel like you could feel better, look better, feel a little healthier, you just need to get to know the good people at Rhonda's Nature's Way. They're closed today and every Sunday. Other six days you're going to find them. The Southside Stores over on Southwest Military. Northside Stores in the Shopping Center there at the corner of I-10 and Callahan. They would love to see you and you would love to visit Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back to gardening on a nice Sunday morning out there. And, uh, oh, gosh, so many things to talk about. So many people interested in talking about them. And it's going to be, let's see here, get this in right in order. David and Steve and Terry and Joyce. And David is up first. Good morning, David. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for taking my call. One of those Thanks things for calling. Is you just, you, I keep on thinking of more questions to ask you. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, first off, I, I, I've got this uh, 
driveway. Oh gosh, you, you know it's just endless driveway crosses the dry creek and the whole thing. But but the every every spring as as stuff grows in, you know, and I've I've thinned it, and I'm less inclined to cut anything down at this point. And so I want to cable all the you know pull these things back. And is there anything uh, about like running a uh, you know lag screw or you know an eye bolt into a side of a tree? Does that that doesn't do any particular damage to the tree, or, or not really. Uh, if some somebody's ever trying to cut that tree up with a chainsaw, they're going to be very unhappy yeah. with whoever did that. If I were doing it on an oak tree, either a red oak or a live oak, I would uh, screw it in, and then I would uh, spray that area with pruning paint. Just because okay. anytime you create a wound, in fact, the place that they think oak wilt started up in Illinois, where lots of our problems seem to start, um, they think it was actually started somebody putting up a basketball goal. How on earth they tracked it down like that? But that's from the first oak wilt conference I think ever held that I went too many years ago. So uh, I wouldn't really worry about it. It's far better to put a you know a, a ring bolt. Uh, or something like that in than it would be to wrap a cable around it, which could, of course, cause a number of girdling problems. So I, I wouldn't hesitate, and if it's on a, a, you know, a hackberry or an elm or something like that, no need to do anything, or a pecan. But on either right, uh, live oak or red oak, I would just, after you put the, the bolt in, I'd, I'd spray that area right around it with some uh, pruning paint or any other good sealing type of paint. Okay. I was listening to that fellow from Fredericksburg with the oak wilt problems, and I, yeah. I'm a drift. I've had oak wilt come through here years ago, and you know, took out most a lot of stuff, left some trees. Um, I've also noticed though this year that there's some big trees, healthy last year, that are just they're not coming out. Is that necessarily oak wilt, or can that be just a you know they're just done? They're you know that um, well that that can just be drought. You know, yeah, there's we are very 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 dry. And, um, again, when we have this kind of drought, and a lot of areas, uh, this is as bad or worse in 2011, that was our worst one-year drought on record. Um, Oak wilt problems will be made worse by this kind of drought. So put an extra dollar in the collection plate and pray for a little more rain or whatever. But uh, I do it every day. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Uh, The one other thing I'll tell you, if you're going to hold vegetation back, with a, you know, whether it's a nylon rope or a cable or whatever you do, if you're, if you're pulling back any woody vegetation that you really want to protect, take an old piece of garden hose or something like that and run the cable through that rather than have it rucking directly on the bark if it's anything you want to protect. Uh, that yeah. will really reduce damage because, you know, the wind's going to come up. That stuff's going to move around and rub back and forth. But, um, other than that, uh, nothing at all wrong with your plan. Yeah, all right. Well, um, so one of the plants that really just went crazy this year is the, the wisteria. And, and uh-huh. uh, it, it's growing up. i got it growing up into, um, I mean, it's 20 feet up into the trees. Is sure. there any problem with letting that, like I've got a, a you know, live oak right by the house and a bunch of volunteers, they're ready to go. They're and I'm just thinking about just letting that wisteria just go up in there. It was stunned. The flowers were stunning this year. Oh, I'm sure. 
I'm sure. The only problem, and, you know, I've seen enormous trees. I can't say I've ever seen a wisteria grown quite that well up a tree. But I see trees that are half covered with grapevine that are still doing just fine. Just keep in mind that the leaves of the wisteria are going to be competing with the leaves of the oak tree for light. So anytime that wisteria is so thick that it's not letting the light get through to the leaves of the oak tree, that particular branch is not going to do as well. In fact, you know, that's why the interior branches die on a tree is just simply that the outer branches shade the interior branches so much. So that could be an issue 10 years down the road, but I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. I'm not either. <laughs> okay, yeah. one last quick question. Um, there's a, a night bird. I always thought it was a whippoorwill, and then some uh, some neighbor said that's not a whippoorwill. They're like, uh, I mean, this thing they they go all night long. Is oh, yeah. there another night bird that's that, that I'm? There's a very that. similar. There's a very similar bird called a poor will that has a slightly different note. It has sort of a two note song rather than a you know a more extended one. But uh, yeah, they're. They are there are two of them that do a lot of calling at night that way. Plus, there are a number of night birds that will make occasional sounds. But if it's one that's just sitting out there trying to keep you awake, uh, you know the whippoorwill oh, no, makes not. makes that whippoorwill sound. The other is more of a two tone, and that's probably what they call a poor will. That's what that is. I've yeah. gone outside and yeah, outside. Just because, like, you know, once you focus on it, it drives you crazy. <laughs> well, you don't have to admit that you've gone outside with a shotgun, but I know some people that are almost to that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, perfect, man. Th- thank you so much. I always uh, listen to the show. I, I, I think of questions during the week. I, well, I wonder what Bob Webster would think about this. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, compare notes, so to speak, when we're talking about bird calls. So you get out and have a great Sunday, and uh, I know we'll talk again. Next in line is uh, Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Off to a good start. Uh, I have a question. My front yard was inundated with weeds. It's a Bermuda. So over the winter, I spray with orange oil vinegar, did that three applications. I still had a lot of weeds, pulled them all out. Uh, now I have a lot of bare areas. Um, what Do you recommend just letting the other Bermuda go, go in place or reseeding with uh, seeds and just watering them in? You know, I if... I have are probably one, one to maybe two feet and then maybe three to four feet at the most. Well, that's you've just answered uh, my question. I would water and fertilize. I wouldn't just, you know, and count on the Bermuda to do it without any support. But we're just coming into the time of year when Bermuda really grows. I've seen Bermuda grow six inches a day. So I would very definitely make a good application of organic fertilizer. I would be watering at least once a week. I'd be putting down an inch of water. And under those circumstances, the Bermuda should fill in those areas much with much less effort than trying to uh, than trying to put down seed. I, unless you were doing just a big blank pallet, I, don't, I would never recommend Bermuda seed. Actually, I would tell you if any of these spots you want it to fill in a little bit faster, just go to a part of your yard where you've got really thick Bermuda, dig up a little three-inch square piece of it or okay. you know, section of it, and go. Just gouge out a little spot in the ground, throw it down, and stomp on it, and maybe give that even a little bit of extra water. But those spots, with some help from you in the form of water and fertilizer, should fill in very, very quickly as we get into summer. Yeah, I watered. I mean, I fertilized uh, about a month ago with the growing green. Then I put uh-huh. a nation of liquid uh, molasses and the uh, Medina 
soil, what is it? The, yeah, soil activator. Yeah, soil activator. Uh, it sounds like all you need to do is water. And if you want to transplant a couple little squares over there, that'll just make it happen that much faster. Okay. Anything I can do to get rid of the weeds aside, uh, manually pull them out that you recommend? Well, your mower is your very best weed control thing we have. And Bermuda, as long as it's getting plenty of sun, Bermuda will choke out most weeds. It's just, you know, a lawn is just a battle between, you know, what's going to dominate, what's going to be the thickest, strongest growing plant out there. And Bermuda is stronger than 99% of the weeds. A straggler daisy might be a little bit of an issue, but if you get your Bermuda thick enough, it's going to choke out any other thing that might be a problem to you. So don't break your back out there trying to pull. Just keep it mowed, uh, keep it, fertilize it like every three months, give it a good thorough drink once a week. And if you can manage to keep that up, you should have an absolutely gorgeous lawn. All right. I appreciate it, Bob. Listen to you always. So good luck, and uh, thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure, Steve. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Uh, let's just take one more call here before we have to do a commercial, and that would be Terry. Good morning, Terry. Hey, Bob. I have a project you can help me with. I live about three miles east of Pipe Creek on a hill. Okay. And I have mostly rock. You go down about a foot, and you get crumbling limestone. Uh-huh. So I'm going to terrace out about 30 feet and build up the soil so I can plant fruit trees. Okay. But the first, the first step is um, getting rid of the Texas mountain laurel and a horrible bush that has razor-sharp leaves and, and yellow sap. I don't know what it's called. Well, it's probably it's probably agarita. The leaves are not so razor sharp, but they've got prickles by the jillions, and they bloom yellow in the spring, and then have kind of a purplish berry. And uh, it's actually, uh, oh golly, I'm trying to remember the technical name of the group that it's in. But yeah, the the common name of it is uh, agarita, and you better be wearing chainmail armor if you're going to be going through that. Um, both of those things, they are woody plants, so there's not a lot you could pour on them that would kill them without doing some damage to the soil. I simply, when I want to eliminate it, I first of all take my heavy-duty long-handled pruners, cut it back to where it's about six inches tall, and then get in there with a grubbing hoe and just, you know, chop around the base, cut the roots. Mount Laurel, you'll eliminate quickly that way. It will not come back. Agarita, you may have to do it a time or two, but... Um, that's in an area that I want to grow things. That's certainly how I would go about getting it under control. With a grubbing hoe? A grubbing hoe, you know what a pickaxe is? Yeah. Okay. If you took a pickaxe and you took the one side of it and broadened it out to where it was about two to three inches wide and, mm-hmm. you know, just a, a not a cutting sharp blade, but a, a blade on that back that's a grubbing hoe now the front end can either be a straight spike or it can be you know the same thing just turned vertically but uh, a grubbing hoe is something that you can you or a whoever your strong helper is will use to just chop down (laughs) yeah then in that case uh uh, don't overdo it, but you'll get some good exercise. But uh, it's the most useful thing in the world. And what you're doing is just cutting things off an inch or two below the surface of the ground and pulling them out. So if I get an inch or two below the ground, which means I've got layers and layers of rock, 
it's taken me about a day to get through all the rock to get about an inch down. No, just do it at ground out. level. Just do it at ground level. You're going to kill the mountain laurel easily. The agarita, you just you know chop it off right at the ground, and then if it sprouts out, do this two or three times, and it will die. Okay, well, that's what I... I've been cutting it down at ground level, and it comes right back. I mean, it's well, just like the. I wish my tomatoes grew that way. <laughs> well, I one get it. What you just have to do is you just have to keep it from making very much foliage, because as soon as it starts making many minute leaves, then it's building sugar so that it can keep coming back. Just if you have to do it on a weekly basis, just get out there and take off everything that comes out. If you want to mix up a little vinegar and orange oil and spray that foliage, that will also help. Uh, If you're planning to cover it up, uh, you could always, you know, cut it off at ground level and then put some sort of barrier on top of it. And I'm talking about something like just an old roofing shingle or something like that down Uh right directly over the base of that plant. And then come back with your soil, and not one out of ten is going to grow through that. Now, okay. to get to get a deep enough area there that you can plant other things, you're—I don't know. I mean, we'd be talking huge amounts of soil if you're actually going to terrace the area. But what I would think about doing is probably creating, and you can kind of you know go along and and created along the contour of the property, but make Mm -hmm. a little individual raised area that's maybe three feet by four feet or something like that, which is going to give you enough room to at least get a tree started in. But we're talking truckloads of dirt to actually terrace it and build it up deep enough because these, you know, fruit trees and things, they... They want to have 18 to 24 inches of soil to really thrive. So we're talking right. about creating a pretty significant little area there. Uh, I'm not suggesting it because I can't think of anything that would look more, oh, I don't even know what the appropriate politically correct term would be. But uh, <laughs> let's just say I had a cousin who was not concerned about uh, the visual appearance of things. And what mm-hmm. Bubba did, appropriately named, is he would mm-hmm. take about four old tires and stack them one on top of the other, fill that with soil, and that's where he planted his fruit trees. And he had a beautiful orchard, but I'm sure in town code compliance would have had a few things to say about the appearance. But I, my point is it doesn't have to look great, but you do need to be able to create an area with pretty deep soil if you're going to hope to grow any kind of fruit tree well. Right. Smaller plants need less soil, but you're going to have to have a pretty good little bit of soil there one way or another to grow peaches or plums or pears or figs or whatever it is you have in mind. Well, this will bring it up about three feet at the the extreme. Well, that would be good. That would be excellent. Uh, It's going to take a substantial little retaining, I'll call it a retaining wall, even if it's just stacked rock, but uh, you're going to get, yeah, well, you're going to have some pressure behind it. So, uh, right. you might look, uh, there's an old fella who's still around, uh, as far as I know, but who did this and actually wrote a book about it named David Bamberger. And uh, his ranch is called Sela, and it's uh, up more toward the Austin area. But uh, he took a rough old piece of ground and turned it into an absolutely beautiful area and somehow enticed Boy Scouts and many others to come back and pick up rocks and create this terracing effect, although I don't think he did anything that was uh, three feet 
you know, up. But uh, you might Google David Bamberger, and and uh, there there's several books have been written about his big project, and uh, might be just a little interesting reading for you to see what he did and how he did it. Okay. Well, that is my project, and um, I know it will take a couple of years, but uh-huh. it's worth it. Well, you get as much as you can done before it gets super hot. Uh, I would strongly suggest, unless you have another favorite product, uh, check out this uh, electrolyte. It's called uh, Ultima, U-L-T-I-M-A. I get mine from Rhonda's Nature's Way, but I know you can also mm-hmm. get it at natural grocers in some places. It's a little packet. You put that with uh, a glass full of water, and it gives you all the benefits of some of these sports drinks, but without all the sugar, and it tastes darn good. There are about six flavors. Raspberry's my favorite. Lemonade's my second favorite. But I I buy that by the box, not by the individual packet, because I sure go through a lot of it in the summer months. And it'll yeah. it'll both make you feel better and uh, uh, can really avoid serious problems. There are a lot of people that have... They don't pay attention to enough water consumption, and they get sick or worse in the summer. So if you don't have another favorite electrolyte, check out Ultima, because it will help you get through this big project a whole lot better. I will think about that. May I ask you just one real short question? Go right ahead, Terry. Okay. I, by accident, I started attracting honeybees. I had left some uh, hot honey out, and the raccoons chewed a hole in it. And when I went out, the bees were just so happy about it so i left it out there and let them um feed on it Uh and now i've got honeybees is would does that hurt them to give them honey no that's their natural food source that's their natural food source be aware that it is almost impossible to visually without a microscope tell the difference between just a regular honeybee and one of these super aggressive ones is called the Africanized bee. And you will not know the difference. The Africanized bee is not aggressive when it's out eating honey or just foraging. But anytime you got lots of bees, be aware that you could have a colony of them in a hollow in a tree. You could have them, you know, under the siding of a building. Anytime you're seeing a lot of uh, bees, just be aware there's a possibility, especially out in the country, that they could be some of the aggressive ones. And if you do find a colony, find a hive, avoid it. Um, if you have any allergy to these things, sometimes you almost even have to eliminate it because these things have killed people and pets. So if you're seeing a lot of bees, again, when they're just out feeding, they pose absolutely no threat to you whatsoever. But if you see a bunch of them flying around a hollow in a tree or going in and out on the siding around an outbuilding or something like that, treat it with extreme caution. Okay. All right. Well, that helps a whole lot. So uh, you get out and enjoy this day, and good luck with your project. It sounds like you've got a good one going, Terry. It is. Okay, thank thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, straight back to the phone lines. It's going to be Joyce and Clint and Frank, and Joyce is first. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob. Good morning to you. You know, the caller before you was talking about bees. I heard an interview the other day that was kind of interesting to me about a guy that has a little company that does bee removal and relocation. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting situation. 
It is, and it's a good thing, the people that do it and do it right. Unfortunately, it can be quite expensive. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing. And sometimes you get some money out of the deal. Yeah, and uh, I, and they also talked about, which I, I'd kind of heard about, but not recently, about renting beehives to people mm-hmm. who want more bees in location, you know, that have a little bit of acreage. I don't think they do it from just a lot in the city. But anyway, well, that's not what I called about. But, but, but to your point, there are people that do that even in the city. And actually, one of the hotels over on I-10 at one point was uh, establishing some beehives on an upstairs terrace area yeah, where people that. didn't frequent so uh, a lot of people doing a lot of good things my friend dr kirby um he he keeps bees in his backyard in alamo heights oh yeah well there's no reason why not mm-hmm. um anyway that that isn't what i called about so let me get going <laughs> you have people waiting yeah it's a, it's a sweet potato question too and that is last year i tried but i started really late to plant one in a big pot uh-huh. and um it was so puny at the end of the year, I didn't even really look for a sweet potato. I just forgot about it and let it go. And now I notice it's coming up. So I guess the potato stayed in the ground. So that's good, but that's still not the point that I was doing. I found a big old sweet potato that I forgot about, and I always buy the organic ones because I want to eat the peeling. Sure. And so it, I noticed it has about a, a half to, uh, inch to a inch sprout coming out in just one place up at the end of the potato and when you've talked to people about uh, growing these things you said that when they grow out to take a piece of the potato a gouge out right. part of the potato and start it in a four inch pot or something to get it going good why could i not do instead of putting it in water and going through all that why couldn't i just such a big sweet potato take out about a inch square hunk of potato and put it in a pot where I could uh, keep and take care of it, wouldn't that also work? I don't know that I would go for that big a piece of potato because the potato is going to decay and fairly rapidly. What I think you could do is uh, simply take a sharp knife Mm -hmm. and, you know, just kind of move slightly away from the sprout and just cut down at a slight angle do the same thing on the other side so you've got a little wedge of sweet potato that's maybe an inch and a half long and half an inch wide and then use that to start we call them slips and uh there would be nothing at all wrong with doing that if you want to be you know 99 percent sure that it would do you could actually put it in perlite instead of in soil and uh, almost be guaranteed that it would root and then transfer to the soil later. You just need to keep that in a real bright spot uh, out on your patio, probably, since you may not have any windows to get that much light. No, but I don't. Uh, just yeah. keep it moist and keep it bright, and uh, you've just uh, started your own slip. So you can start out with a pretty small eye. I mean, you can tell oh, yeah. it's an eye. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be grown a big vine, and it's okay. okay. No, well, in fact, it, it will root much better if it's a small vine rather than a big vine when you do this. Okay. But even as a little eye, that's like half an inch with all the little red, you know, you can definitely tell it's an eye. Well, wait until it has some leaves. Wait until you see some leaves started. Okay. And then take your slip. And what a lot of people do is, again, just take three toothpicks and suspend that in a jar of water and uh, you can get a dozen slips off one potato. 
Okay. Okay. Well, I was just I I I just thought it's going to be easier if I could take it out while it was fairly small. Yeah, and absolutely. Pot and do it rather than than going to making roots on the potato because the root of the potato doesn't really do anything to the slip. You know. If <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yep. Okay. Your plan will should work fine. Okay. Good. Well, I'll try that. Well, second question and last. And that is uh, Belinda's dream. About a year and a half ago, I succeeded in rooting myself three nice cuttings and got them in five-inch pots, and each of them has given me one rose this spring. Good. So they're ready to go somewhere. But I have so little sun. The best sun I have is in one of those typical four-foot by long rectangular beds that they do in the neighborhood that, that are right mm-hmm. off the street. Right. And my question is, I guess you can grow anything anywhere if you give it what it needs, but is it feasible? Because I know that Belinda's Dream, I've seen yours, it gets to be a big, big bush. Can it be um, maintained in that in a four-foot by, well, the length oh, sidewise? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What you'll do is just... Belinda's dream being an own root vigorous rose does not have to be pruned the way some of these modern grafted hybrids do. But there's no reason that you can't give it a pretty severe haircut in February every year and just keep it to a little bit more compact plant. You'll still get plenty of the great big beautiful blooms, but you can have a plant that's, you know, four feet by four feet instead of eight feet by eight feet and uh it'll be just as healthy and just as vigorous and a whole lot less uh, dangerous to anybody who walks by it too closely. Yeah, well, that was the point because they do a lot of people walk, but that bed is at least four or more feet wide. So That's I think... plenty of room for it, Joyce. Okay, okay, well, that'll work well. Well, uh, good luck to you and all of your little uh, fuzzy family. I hope all are doing well. and we'll... Well, we had a real close call with one of the girls, but I happen to know this absolutely incredible veterinarian who pulled her through, and so everybody is doing very well now. Thank you. Oh, goodness gracious. That must have been a scare to you. Well, I'm glad things are doing well. So good. It's called idiopathic autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and it's not something you want to mess with, but uh, an absolutely wonderful friend. Uh, She's back up to totally normal blood levels and hopefully going to be going for quite a while longer, so thanks for asking. Well, I'm glad I'm, I may have to call Dr. Kirby later, too, because I have a question about my neighbor's puppy dog that I was sure. wondering about some things. So I may do that if I can get through. So we'll see. Well, thank you, Bob. You're welcome, Joyce. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. It's going to be Clint and Frank and Glenn and Beverly. Clint is first. Good morning, Clint. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? Ah, uh, it's just a beautiful Sunday out there. I hear that. Listening to y'all popped up two more questions. I didn't even think about calling the ass. Y'all were talking about bees. Uh, I got uh, a hollow in the tree in the backyard. I'm on the fence. I really don't want to destroy them. Uh-huh. And every wild beehive over the years have always put, commenced putting a whooping on me at the wrong point in time. And <laughs> right. And I don't know if they were the African ones or just mean wild bees, but I was thinking any chance of a smoker will calm them down so I can cut the grass and all that other stuff? Man, I, you know, I I just hate to trust them. Um, I, my advice would probably be either do it really early in the morning when it's still uh, cool, when the bees haven't gotten real active, 
But these, you know, the the Africanized bees are just, they're just, they're, they're deadly. I mean, they do kill people and pets, and anybody that has any kind of allergic reaction to them, it's, it's increasingly dangerous. What I would try to do, and I would do this from a distance, uh, with a butterfly net or something like that, I would try to capture a single bee, and I would take it to probably a pest control company, because and and I don't know the difference, but I I do know that I've, I've done this with the ABC here in San Antonio, and taken a bee and said, hey, is this an Africanized bee? And they stick it under the scope, and they can tell you yes or no, and then you'll know how much of a threat that they pose to you. But um, I just I, you you could attempt to smoke them out. But you just don't want to get them riled up. I mean, if if you had a professional beekeeper's garb, you know that big old net hat and uh, thick clothing and things like that. But that's the only way I'm going to get near a beehive that I'm not sure of because uh, even and I don't think I, he would mind me telling you this. Uh, Dr. Kirby keeps you know the good domestic bees in his backyard, but he got stung near the eye recently and he was a sick man for two or three days so it's just not something you really want to mess with glenn i i had a bee i was out working in the garden and the bee come up out of nowhere it hit me just under the eye and yeah I'm looking and there was a drum in the grass i never knew about uh-huh probably about 80 90 feet away yep yep so I'm well I, I, if if you know anybody down in your area um, if you know any of the pest control folks, they probably wouldn't even charge you for it. Just tell them, hey, I'm concerned. Uh, you know, here's a bee when you get it, stick it in the freezer or something like that. So you're not, you know, you're not damaging it to where they can't examine it, but stick it in the freezer to, uh, uh, to keep it from posing a threat, shall we say. And, and get a good, uh, what do you call it? An apiarist or somebody like that, that that really knows bees to take a look. Somebody you can trust and and just determine if it's Africanized or not. I sure would, I sure would feel a lot better about it because uh, uh, you know you're a good guy and I don't want to see see you laid up because <laughs> these things when they come after you, you know you can get a hundred or more stings very very quickly and uh, uh, bee venom is very different from wasp venom. And uh, it's just something that can mess you up or kill you. And I, we won't, don't need to go any further than that. I sure don't want to see that happen to anybody, let alone somebody I really enjoy talking to. <laughs> and did you say they can kill dogs and all that? Oh, yeah. Horror? Yeah. It's, uh, there are probably wow. 10 dogs killed for every human uh, that gets badly hurt. But, yeah, the dogs go nosing around, get after the bees, and uh, it it's usually has a very bad outcome for the dog. Good deal. Well, and I appreciate the advice on that one. I got a, a friend I'm trying to get all, off the chemicals and stuff, and he, he likes that we be gone. And I was telling him about how the pickle rim doesn't go away, and mm-hmm. the remedy and all those problems. Uh, does that, he was asking, does the uh, we be gone, does that hang out, or is that something that got dissipates, or how would it you does, get that out it of does, It does break down. It is one of those ones that will be totally decomposed over time, and it is a very well-known cancer causer. It's not going to stick around and destroy your soil, but it may give you cancer. So I would strongly discourage. Uh, it's, tell, them it's, tell them it's one of the primary ingredients of ancient orange, and uh, I have a couple of very good friends, uh, very messed up uh, by uh, Vietnam exposure to Agent Orange, so maybe that'll get his attention. 
his attention definitely. Uh, now I was thinking about maybe a bay leaf tree out here. My better half loves mm-hmm. cooking bay leaves, and I guess the oh, bay yeah. leaf tree has some good uh, good tea benefits. But I don't know if Abs- we can really use that much. But then I also heard they kind of grow wild in this area. Is that oh yeah that? yeah? <laughs> as long as you'll give them a little moisture when it gets really dry, bay is extremely easy to grow, and it has lots of different uses. You know, you can crumble up those leaves. If you're saving cornmeal or anything like that, you can put it in flour, cornmeal, things like that. You won't ever have weevils get into it. Uh, uh, you could probably have a good restaurateur friend uh, who's really good, and he loves it. When I'll take him a few branches uh, off my big bay tree, and uh, he does like a little garnish, a little decorative thing around uh, each plate in his restaurant. So. Uh, it's almost impossible to have too much bay, and <laughs> I'm an old horse trader. It's amazing the it's amazing what a what a bag of ripe tomatoes or or some good bay leaf will get you in the way of a free drink or a free hamburger or whatever might be out there. So no, I'd strongly encourage you to plant a bay tree. Now, do you harvest old old growth or new growth, or it doesn't really matter? doesn't matter? Doesn't matter. I I like to let it go until it's a little leathery, just because it lasts longer and it's easier to crumble. But uh, it's it's going to be quite aromatic. Uh, uh, the leaves develop that aroma pretty quickly, and uh, if your if your lady friend does uh, any Cajun cooking, you will definitely benefit from having a bay tree around. Oh no 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 lady friends! I just have a better half for the last thirty three years. Oh. <laughs> you know well. I guess if you were going to get in trouble, it would have happened a long time before now. But hopefully, uh, hopefully, you, you and I are the only one in fifty thousand other people hearing this conversation, or you just might be in trouble. <laughs> oh, oh no, she loves listening to you too. Very good, Glenn. I appreciate it. Oh. You be careful with those bees and get out there and have a great, uh, great Sunday. You too. Take care. Thank you so much. Goodbye. All right, let me pause for a second here and talk about another great guy, and that's my friend Dr. Mark Williamson. You know, dental health just has a lot to do with your overall health, and uh, you just want to stay in the best of dental health, and that requires having a good dentist. That requires having somebody that you feel comfortable with, somebody that treats you properly, and I think should be somebody that treats you like a friend, like a trusted comrade, not somebody who just sees you as a dollar sign, trying to move as many as you and as many people like you through his practice as quickly as he can. And that's what modern corporate corporate dentistry has turned into. It's just It's just a factory operation. Well, if you would like to get back to quality dentistry, kind of the old-fashioned way, you need to know about Dr. Mark Williamson. He's one of the most skilled dentists and oral surgeons of anybody I know. There are very, very few problems that Dr. Williamson can't take care of right there in his office. He's not going to be sending you to a specialist for everything that's a little beyond cleaning and uh, maybe filling a cavity or whatever. Dr. Williamson tackles the tough oral medicine problems and does it in a very friendly, very... Oh, stress-free fashion. You know, he's carried on a lot of what Dr. Staffel started with uh, sedation dentistry for people who are really bothered by it. But just the minute you walk into his office, it just feels different. You've got a very welcoming atmosphere. You've got one of the most skilled dentists in the world. You've got a staff that sincerely cares about you. And when you can combine quality dentistry with just a really comfortable environment, I don't know what you would be looking for anymore for. Dr. Williamson has years and years of experience and uh, is just like 
like I say, he's, he's very well qualified and also an extremely capable man who has created a true family practice. Why don't you find out what I'm talking about? If it's time for a new dentist or if you're new to the area and you're looking for a really good dentist, well, check out Dr. Williamson and Associates. Your number is 341-2569, 210 area code, of course, 341-2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Uh, oh, golly, I can't help but hear ads like that last one. And since it's not a local one, I will point out to you that a lot of these things that are made to attract mosquitoes or whatever kind of bugs, very, very hard on the populations of beneficial insects that fly at night, like lacewings and things like that. So be very careful where you would put anything like that up, and keep in mind that we do have we do have some really good guys out there, like lacewings, that do a lot, a lot of things when it comes to uh, uh, pest control. Let's get back to the phone lines. Frank, Glenn, Beverly, and Sarah. And Frank is up first. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. How's everybody in San Antonio? Well, I can't speak for the entire city, but everybody in my immediate vicinity, including uh, two black dogs and two orange cats, we all seem to be doing well. Good, good. I was down there at your place last weekend and uh, met Wendy and very helpful people you have working over there. Oh, we've got an incredible staff. We've got people people that love people, and it makes all the difference. So I sure appreciate you visiting us. Sorry I didn't get to see you. No, that's cool. I knew uh, you had a... uh, rebroadcast uh of your show and everything we were just trying to get back to washington county before it rained (laughs) (laughs) well i i will admit we were celebrating my business partner's birthday and uh we were headed for the coast at that time so uh it was uh um no apologies i'm here about 50 weeks out of the year and it was a it was a great couple of days we were able to get away so i'm i'm glad our staff could took good care of you but uh how can i help you today well, I was just wondering, I was kind of worried about Clint. You know, if anybody knows him, they need to go check on him this afternoon because I think he <laughs> may be in trouble. They need well, really, uh, I, I think he's open to suggestion, and I, I hope we made the point clear to not just yeah, him, but the other 50,000 or people. Those, uh, you know, bees, the, the, the one thing is, don't I just hate it when people just want to go kill every bee they see because they're worried about it because even the Africanized bees are perfectly harmless I mean if you grab them sure they'll sting you but they're not going to attack you uh, when they're out foraging in the garden or anything like that it's when something threatens their colony that they can become deadly so I you know like you know me I just want to give 10 times more information than people ask for just to be sure everybody understands that's why oh, well, we love your program. I appreciate that. But I was I was more worried about him and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did he mention? Twenty some odd years. You know, if they haven't been at each other's throat by now, they're they're probably got it worked out pretty well. But uh, people well, who can uh, people who can joke about things tend to have very healthy relationships. Thank goodness. And I, I suspect it's uh, and I have to. I'm, I'm going to quote my engineer. And uh, something he said recently that I just think this is one of the most profound things that I've ever heard. But uh, 
we were talking about the fact that you can tell with guys, you can tell how much they like each other by the insults that they throw at each other. I mean, you see somebody and you start picking on them immediately, you know they're really good friends. Well, Chris said right. this is the difference in men and women, that when men get together, they pretend they hate each other, but they really love each other. When women get together, they pretend to love each other, but they really hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! I I, I I just thought, and of course that's 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 poking fun at at, a, at being yeah. very insincere about it. But uh, uh, anyway, sure made me laugh, and I hope it does you too. <laughs> you bet, and uh, you understand that as well as other other guys out there. We get it. All right. But well, we we've had women in our lives for a lot of years. <laughs> we drifted off from gardening so quickly, and it's my fault. <laughs> well, and let's get back to gardening and how I can help you. All right, I've got a uh, a big road that's about 15 by 30, and I've been working on this thing for about 22 years now. Okay. And I've still got grass coming up uh, through there, and I'm, I've got cardboard that is my base, you know, and I've had to replace that a couple of times, of course. But is there a mulch that's more resistant to weeds and grass than any other mulch. And I know it's the thickness of the layer of the mulch that you put out there. Well, it, that's a great that's a great question and you have to consider a little bit about what kind of weeds we're talking about. We have weeds that grow when a seed blows in and, you know, germinates and grows and typically a very coarse mulch is going to have a lot less problem with the seed blowing in and sprouting and growing than a very fine mulch. So uh, if that's the type of weed we're talking about, yes, there would be a big difference in mulches. And the coarser the mulch is, the less weeds you're going to have sprouting come up in it. On the other hand, if we're talking about a weed that is already in the ground and comes up through the mulch like Bermuda grass, I've had Bermuda grass come up through two feet of good mulch. And so... That kind of thing, no, I don't know that there is any any mulch. And, of course, technically black plastic is a mulch. But um, if if you're dealing with something like Bermuda grass coming up, no, you've got to solarize it. You've got to do whatever you can to kill it. But if it's the henbit, the dandelions, the uh, crabgrass, the winter grasses that blow in, a, a the thicker and more coarse the mulch is, the fewer of those seeds you will have sprout and grow. Well, I've got all of the above. I mean, I've got Johnson grass poking through there, and that's coming up from way down deep. I know that. Yeah. But, uh, it just gets to a point because it's in a uh, area that I can't. You know, it's in a it's in a driveway and. Sure. It's sure. Just, uh, well, Johnson Johnson grass is one of the easiest things to kill because if you can keep it from growing a big top, if you just mow Johnson grass, you know, religiously for a couple of months, it'll die out because it has to make a tall top. In this area, if you would just spray it down with orange oil every time it comes up, given a little time, you will totally eliminate the Johnson grass. But Bermuda grass is another story. You can kill that stuff a hundred times and it always seems to come back. But, uh, um, it, at some point, if you can, solarize it. Cover it up with uh, plastic, either black or clear, and leave it that way for six have, weeks in the hot summer. And That's the best way I've found I to go after of, it. I have part of that already with some black plastic with some bricks covering it up, but I know this isn't the right time of year to do that right. to uh, get it thoroughly. But one more thing. one uh, I think it was on a Saturday morning about a month ago or so, 
you were talking about like when an acorn falls in a trunk, uh-huh. say if there's a trunk of a dead tree land, and you uh-huh. called it something, and I can't remember what that was. Um, I don't know the specific term for it, but uh, there are some trees, the big redwoods and things like that, and some of the Douglas firs and things that you see, and I saw this most pronounced up on the uh, Puget Sound area, but uh, those, they have to germinate and grow above the ground. They absolutely have to have that root flare really well exposed. So if their seed lands on the ground, it usually doesn't grow. It lands on top of what they call a nurse log. Maybe that's the term you were thinking of. That's what, but, yeah. Yeah, that's they call it a nurse log, and it grows its roots down, and gradually the uh, the rot log rots away. And that's why you walk out and sometimes see these trees that look like they, you know, they've got four feet of root before they even go into the ground. That's why, because the log that they started on is totally rotted away. Okay, I knew you'd come up with it. But uh always love your program, and uh, just let's pray for Clint. <laughs> Along with the rain. Frank, you get out and have a wonderful Sunday. We're almost up to news time here. Glenn, you'll be up next, and then Beverly and Sarah. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. Can't believe we've already talked gardening for two hours, launching into uh, last hour of gardening, and then we'll have an hour of pets with Dr. Kirby. Uh, looks like it's going to be Glenn and Beverly and Sarah and Gary, and uh, that would mean Glenn's up first. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. I've Good got morning. Two, two simple questions. My multiplying onions are starting to... Uh, flower, is it worthwhile to try and collect those seeds and reuse them? That's strictly up to you. Uh, Multiplying onions are normally propagated by just dividing the clumps of onions, but there's no reason you can't collect the seed and and plant it. It takes takes a while for them to get up and make, you know, a a fair-sized little onion, but... um, uh, like I say, I'd say 90% of the time they're propagated just by dividing the original clump. And when you're dividing the original clump, you know you're getting exactly the same genetics. So every every plant is going to be what you want uh, because onions may possibly be insect pollinated. If you've got other onions growing and flowering in the area, you could get some oddball stuff come out of growing it from seeds. So try it if you like, but your main focus should probably be on dividing the clumps that you're producing. Well, my multiplying ends are about a 15-foot-long bed right now, and I keep multiplying yeah. them. <laughs> uh, it's them hard to have them. too many of them. It's, yeah, it's hard to have too many good onions. That's true. Uh, second question, I saw someplace that if you planted a tomato plant sideways, you get a bigger and better root system. Well, yes and no. Um, tomatoes are one of the few plants in the world that can actually sprout roots all the way up and down the trunk. And a, a way of planting an overgrown tomato, and I learned this a lot of years ago, a gentleman I worked with up in the hill country, we had some commercial growers that would come in and they would always want our biggest, most overgrown plants. And I said, how on earth are you going to plant these things? And he said, oh, we're just going to dig a trench and plant them sideways like you're talking about. And they grew very good plants. On the other hand, I don't know that that makes a better plant than just, you know, getting a good transplant and planting a little bit deeper 
Um, uh, quite frankly, d- uh, tomatoes I grow, I don't want them to grow any more vigorously than they do. They come up out the top of a seven-foot cage and go over the edge and come back down and touch the ground and keep on growing. So it, it's certainly true that you can plant them horizontally, but unless you've uh, been forced to settle for some plants who are badly overgrown to begin with, I don't know that I would do it intentionally, if that makes sense. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, that was my that was my main two questions. Thank you for well, your time, sir. It's always a pleasure. You get it and have a good Sunday, Glenn, and call me anytime I can help. And we move along next to Beverly. Good morning, Beverly. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's see, what I'm calling about, um, first of all, my garden area used to grow plants just really, really well, but now the soil is way too uh, hard. And what can I do to soften that up? Well, just stay organic in what you do. If you use an organic fertilizers and organic products, your soil should get softer and softer over time rather than harder. Now, things that will work to soften it when it has gotten hard, you could. Uh, there's a product called uh, Medina Plus, which is just an improved form of their soil activator that over time won't happen with one application, but it will work to soften the soil. Uh, Garrett Juice, which is a concoction, you can either buy it pre-mixed or you can go to Howard's website at uh, dirtdoctor.com and his formula is right up there so you can create your own. Uh, molasses, either dry molasses or liquid molasses will work to soften your soil. But above all, just stay away from the synthetic fertilizers and those things burn the organic material out of the soil and that's what makes your soil get so hard over time. So, uh, and if you want to soften it the fastest way you possibly can, get some good compost and put a layer of it about an inch deep over the area, keep that moist and that will soften your soil very, very quickly. What, what you want to do is just be sure you keep it soft, which means going on using nothing but organic products on it. Okay, well, that that sounds great. And, you know, another thing, when I have potatoes, they usually start sprouting. But if I put them in the icebox, they don't. Is it bad to put potatoes in the icebox? Well, don't put them in the freezer. You'll ruin a potato in the freezer, but keeping it uh, in your vegetable crisper is uh, a great way to prolong their shelf life. Oh, okay. Somebody said that... uh, to do that, it'll make them too sweet. It's not good. It no. Sugar. <laughs> no, it's uh, somebody's a little misinformed on that one. You, um, uh, you can you can increase their shelf life. Generally, if as long as you keep them cool, they're not going to sprout. They're not going to do a whole lot. But uh, you can certainly ensure that by keeping them. Just just don't let them go below freezing. That will destroy uh, a lot of the quality of them. Okay. Great, then I can just keep them in the icebox. Another thing, we used to have uh, a lot of grass, carpet grass, underneath the uh, oak tree, but now the oak tree has got so so big. Now we don't have grass in those areas. Uh-huh. What would you uh, suggest to put? The well, grass is, grass, yeah. out, grass is mm-hmm. a waste of time. When it gets real shady, grass just isn't going to grow. If you want something that looks like grass, there is something called dwarf mondo grass or dwarf monkey grass, and it will thrive in the shade of that oak tree and make an absolutely beautiful bed. Uh, if you want to plant a little thicker ground cover, there's a plant called Asian jasmine that will give you a beautiful ground cover underneath that oak tree. And if you want something a little bit bigger, there are plants like Aspidistra, also known as cast iron plant, plants like holly fern, uh, plants like Akuba. 
there, there are many different plants that will tolerate the shade, and it just depends on whether you want just a low ground covering or whether you want a little bit bigger garden. There are also some flowers that will do very well. Salvia coccinea, known as tropical sage, will bloom beautifully in an area like that. You've got a world of different possibilities that are a lot more interesting than grass to begin with. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to try some of those. And my husband said to ask you, he had two pecan trees to die recently and they was over 20 years old. Why did these pecan trees die? Probably the drought. You know, people think of pecan trees as being just really tough trees, but uh, we've had, the drought has been so bad in many areas that I'm seeing pecan trees and other trees suffer. And in some cases, uh, gosh, I've seen enormous pecan trees, not so much out in the country. Uh, I mean, I've got pecan trees that are, you know, three and a half feet thick, and they seem to come through all the drought. But in town where people are planting them in a yard where they've gotten a little spoiled, they haven't really spread the roots out because they're getting everything they needed uh, just from the water that the grass and things got. When we get really, really dry and those roots that are way down deep, they really suffer. And uh, I would almost bet you that it's just an issue of drought. It certainly should not be a disease or anything like that. Okay, so I, the pecan trees that I do have, I need to start water, watering them more, right? At least, you know, don't you, if you water briefly, you're helping your grass, but not your trees. If you would once a month turn that hose on, put it, you know, kind of move it around different places around the base of the tree, and just literally, I mean, it'll run up your water bill, but it, and you don't have to do it real often, but if once a month or so you would be able to give those trees a really deep watering, you'll have much healthier trees. Oh, well, that well that's a plan. Okay, well, I thank I, you so much. If I could give you an example of this, and yeah. um, I'm, I'm very blessed to live on a big piece of land outside of town. I have uh, a creek that runs through that had pecan trees or has pecan trees up and along it. And then I have, uh, you know, 200 yards away in one of my pastures, I've got some absolutely enormous pecan trees. Those pecan trees that were out in the pasture, I mean, those roots probably go to the next county. The pecan trees along the creek got real spoiled because uh, they just always had all the water they needed being close to the creek. In 2011, which was the single worst one-year drought that we'd ever had, I had several trees along the creek just fold up and die because the creek dried up and it stayed dry for you know a year or longer and the pecan trees perished because they didn't have a real widespread root system. My pecan trees that are out in the pasture who have been forced to develop a really big root system to, you know, live the past hundred years, they got through the drought without any problem. So we just have to remember with everything in our landscapes, if we are getting them accustomed to getting water from us, when we get into severe drought, we have to keep watering or we're likely to suffer some severe damage, and that goes all the way up to some of our trees. Oh, well, boy, oh, that's something good to know. But I really thank you for the information. Is certainly welcome, Beverly. I appreciate the call this morning. You have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks. Uh, I guess we better get a break in here, Chris. We'll be right back and talk to Sarah and Gary. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Sarah and Gary and Sandy and Robin. Sarah is up first. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Bob. It's so nice to talk to you this morning. My pleasure. I have a question about, uh, well, I need some help with the plant selection. 
I have a hedge along my back lawn between me and my neighbors. We have a chain link fence, and on their side of the yard, they have a variety of plants. I can't quite tell what they are, but some legustrums. I think there's some hackberries in there. It's sort of a bramble of stuff. That, <laughs> a thicket. Yeah, 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 exactly a thicket. And um, it has beautiful grapevines growing all through it. I'm kind of in downtown Bernie. So half the year, it's a dense hedge. Then when the grape leaves fall, it's pretty sparse. And I'm wanting to fill it in on my side of the yard where there's there's nothing quite growing, but it's uh, a lot of shade to half of the year, to very deep shade the other half of the year. And I'm just not sure what would do pretty well. I need it to get up to at least six feet. Is it fairly sunny or is this thicket so thick that there's not much light gets through to the ground underneath? When the grape leaves are growing, it's pretty it's pretty shaded. During the winter months, after the grape leaves have fallen, it gets some dappled light, but it's still primarily just in the shade. Okay. Um, I was going to say there are, there are a couple of native vines that you could plant if you just want to have more vines growing through in there, but you want to have some things that kept their leaves. There is a, uh, a native plant uh, called coral honeysuckle that grows just fine in Bernie. It's not a real thick dense it's not an invasive honeysuckle like the japanese honeysuckle but you could simply plant some of that and let it become a part of the thicket you could do the same thing with cross vine now there's an improved form of cross vine called tangerine beauty cross vine if you come into san antonio and go down around the pearl anytime that's the vine that you see just growing everywhere with all the tangerine orange flowers in the spring and you can plant some of that and just let it grow up and it's going to remain evergreen even after the grape drops its leaves now if you wanted to actually plant a you know some big shrubs in there which would make it even thicker and denser but uh, things that would hold their leaves through the winter months uh, loquat is one that you could plant there are some big viburnums, uh, mirror leaf, uh, chindo. There are a number of big viburnums that are going to grow six to eight feet tall, which are going to remain evergreen. I uh, was talking to a caller earlier about bay leaf, and, you know, it's the bay suffered some in that really, really severe winter two years ago, but bay is in a beautiful, you know, shrubby plant with uh, obviously some great culinary uses as well. And when you're out of 30 years, it might get some winter damage, but gosh, I've had one for many, many years. I live just west of Bernie, and uh, that would be something else would be evergreen that would kind of contribute to that sort of thicket look. And then if you want to actually get into, you know, creating more of an artistic-looking landscape, I can tell you a few other things. But uh, if you just want to basically look at leave it looking wild but have some uh, privacy growing there in the winter months, those are all things that I would consider. Oh, great. I love bay leaf and, and loquat, but I was concerned with the amount of shade. But I guess if I'm not trying to get a fruit, um, it would be okay with the loquat. Well, they, yeah, they, they will tolerate some shade. They probably they're not going to have leaves, aren't going to be quite as big or quite as dense. But uh, keep in mind that there are going to be four or five months out of the year when there are no leaves up there to stop the sun, and they're going to continue growing and photosynthesizing in the winter months when the grape and several of the other things have dropped all their leaves. So it, they, they a lot of times sort of store enough energy during the winter months that they make it through the summer when it's shadier. 
Okay, and I also have some pittosporum and xylosma in different parts of my yard that I thought mm-hmm. about just digging up and moving back there. Oh, those, both of those would be fine, too. Okay. Yeah, both of okay. those would be do very well. Once again, I'm just, uh, oh, after, you know, year before last, I, I just little reluctant about things that uh, have been widely planted that really suffer badly in the freeze. I, I lost a green pittosporum that the trunk is probably 24 inches across. So, But those things would do well, and that plant had probably been there for 80 years without any damage, oh, so wow. I guess that's a pretty good long run. Right, yes. Okay. Well, thank you. I have some great ideas, and I have another question about aphids. Okay. I have a, a stock tank pond. It's just decorative, and it has some goldfish and lily pads. Uh-huh. Um, and it, the lily pads are covered with aphids right now. Mm-hmm. And I think I've heard you say you could spray with spinifad soap for aphids. Is that correct? You can. I would probably, um, I, I would probably just go with dormant oil or something like that. And I would just spray very, very lightly. Uh, we had at one time, we had a problem with like that on a pond with aphids. And with the fish that we had in there, we added some of uh, the gambusia, some of the mosquito fish, and we would just go through. We did this about uh, for about a week. We went through and we'd just take and reach down and push that uh, lily pad down under the water and just take our hands and just kind of wash the aphids off into the water, and the fish devoured them very, very quickly. And so we, we got them under control. Like I say, it took doing this every day for a week, but um, it totally eliminated the aphids. Okay, just give them some, make them fish food. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I can do that. Yeah, that, and that would probably be the easiest and safest thing for, for your fish. Okay, I have one last question. I have a beautiful forest pansy redbud that's getting some seed pods on it, and I wanted to uh-huh. know if I could, uh, how I could use those seed pods to make some more forest pansy <laughs> redbud. Well, unfortunately, the seed from the forest pansy redbud probably is not going to come back as a forest pansy. It was oh, okay. a a selection just because of its dark, dark purple leaves and beautiful pink flowers, but its genetics are all mixed up. Uh, and that's why the forest pansies are almost exclusively grafted trees. If you collected a hundred seed, if you collected a thousand seed and grew every one of them out, probably one or two of them would be as pretty as your original forest pansies. So it's just, uh, you just, again, when you're, when you're dealing with a, a selected plant like that that is propagated asexually, as they say, that's propagated through cuttings or graftings, that's how they've been able to maintain that beautiful color, is that it's all part of the original plant. When you start mixing things up, as you get with seed, uh, you just, no guarantees what you're going to get, and you probably not very many of them are going to come out nearly as pretty as your forest fancy. Okay, well, I'll just enjoy the one I have then. And do remember to water it through this dry period. I, red buds are another one that survive a lot of drought. But in your landscape where it's used to your getting water, uh, a lot of people, a lot of meteorologists are comparing this year to 2011, which was our single one-year driest year since they've started keeping weather history. So uh, we're going to be talking if we don't get significant rainfall. We're going to have to do a lot of supplemental watering on landscapes. And when it's just sort of dreary and drizzly like this, does that really provide no. any water? No. Okay. It might help the grass a little bit, but it does nothing for our big shrubs and trees. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate it. Have a beautiful uh, it's day. It's my pleasure, Sarah. You do the same. Thank you. I believe Gary is next in line now. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Off to a good start. It's a beautiful morning out there. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, I had a couple of quick questions. Uh, I've got a plant I've identified as a desert spoon. Are you familiar with that? Desert spoon? Yeah, it's like a that's a spiny, long-fronded uh, cacti-looking thing. Gosh, I I don't know uh, it by that name. It sounds like a, a cactus. Does it have fairly thick leaves or pads? No, it's like a palm frond almost, uh, like a... Uh, I don't know. Uh, and and uh, I don't suppose you, you no. don't have a botanical name for it, do you? Uh, let me see. It was uh, uh, <laughs> I hate to do that uh, to you, know, you, but yeah, the problem with common names. Yeah, but, uh, well, ask me your question, and we'll see if we can identify well, it that way. When they were uh, put in by the landscaper, I don't know if it was one or two, but there's now I see there's two of them. They're growing together in a... And they've got the, you know, the spot, little spines on them, you know, now. Uh-huh. And uh, so I'm wondering if uh, it, it looks like a Texas Soto is what it looks like. Okay, okay. Uh, but it's it's kind of a paler color. Anyway, the spines that are rubbing against each other, it's kind of, uh, you know, I don't know if it's killing each other or what. But uh, I was going to see if I could split those things. They're about six inches apart, you know. I, and, uh, no, I, I, you would have very, very little little luck in trying to divide them they're almost certainly you know connected down underground it's just it's like an underground trunk on sotols and also on some of the agaves this could it this description also you know matches pretty closely some of the agaves that have a lot of spines up and down the side of a very flat leaf as well but they they tend to be joined at a single point at the base that you just really really can't split without okay. probably losing both plants. So uh, uh, if you like it, I'd say enjoy it. If you want to get in there and trim it up a little bit, uh, you can probably <clears throat> at least slow down some of that damage because, you know, you get the kind of wind that we've had the past couple of weeks. They're going to they're gonna tear up each other. In the case of the agaves, I've known people to go in and just clip the spines off where they were either posing a threat to things walking by it or where they were, you know, rubbing back and forth and just tearing things up. It doesn't hurt the plant at all to clip that spine off, and if you restricted it just to the area where the damage is occurring, it probably wouldn't be all that noticeable. So a couple of different options here, but I, I really don't think dividing is, is one of them. Now, if you wanted to, you could dig down three or four inches deep and just cut one of them off and discard it. Uh, that would not hurt the one that was left behind, and it would continue to grow. But uh, there's okay. not really a way to salvage both plants, if that was your intention. Yeah, okay. Uh, I've got the name of Dasilarian. Yeah, Dasilarian. Yeah, it's, it is a Sotol. Uh, Sotol is actually Dasilarian Sotol, and uh, it's just a different Dasilarian, and uh, no chance at all of, of trying to divide it. There, there are many different species of it. If you know Sotol, it you know it makes that bloom spike that's about six or eight feet tall. Right. And we used to my my summers in West Texas in a wildlife management area. There's another Sotol out there that uh, its bloom spikes only about two feet tall. So you know what we called it? That was Dazzlerian, not Sotol. But uh, <laughs> so anyway, closely related. You did a great job of comparing it to a Sotol, but there would be no chance of splitting that plant in half. Okay. You could eliminate half of it if you wanted to, but no way you're going to make two plants out of it. Okay. Uh, and one more quick question about Esperanza. Uh, you can take uh, a cutting from that. Have I read that and try to start another one? 
You can do that. In fact, if you do it um, really in early summer, uh, because they are woody plants, it takes a little longer to root. I would soak your cuttings. Keep your cuttings very short. It needs to be mature wood. Keep your cuttings down to maybe three or four inches. Soak them in some garret juice or liquid seaweed, uh, and you will root them in perlite. You're going to have to keep them in a shady spot, and you may end up you know, wetting them down three or four times a day to keep them from dehydrating too badly. But that way, I mean, the commercial people do it. They've got them sitting on a bench where they automatically come on and missed them six times an hour for 12 hours out of the day. But uh, the other thing that you can do is wait a little later in the summer until it really warms up, and you can take a bigger branch on this plant, and we do what's called an air layer. If you want to Google that, and you actually see pictures of the process. But we take a knife and just kind of scrape the bark or cut the bark off one side of one of the stems for a length of about three or four inches. Then we take some moist, long-fibered sphagnum moss, kind of stuff they used to line hanging baskets, wrap a handful of that around this area that we've damaged on the stem, and then tie that up very tightly, either with aluminum foil or with plastic wrap, and just leave it sit there for about six weeks. And what will happen is the plant will put roots out of that sphagnum moss, and then you can go back, unwrap, take the plastic or the foil off, clip it off, below that that clump of moss and what you've got in effect is a pre-rooted cutting and you can do that easily with esperanza you can do that with you know rubber plants ficus trees not every plant can be done that way but esperanza would be very easy you know if you had a, a big plant you could put six eight ten different air layers on there and it's uh, it's virtually a hundred percent successful because you're letting the cutting root before it comes cuts away from the mother plant. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I might try that. Then that sounds yeah. Look look up air layer. It's a little hard to explain exactly how you do it on the radio. It'd be a lot easier on TV. But um, <laughs> it it's uh, if you're really interested in doing it where you don't have to be giving it daily attention. Uh, you can just put your air layer on it. If you wrap it tightly, the moss is going to hold the moisture, and you know it's. Then all you got to do is go back six weeks later, be sure it's formed the roots, cut it away, and you got a new plant ready to go. All right. Well, that sounds good. I appreciate your help this morning. Thank you. Well, always a pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning.